every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, are you a French fry person or an ice cream person? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbath. I'm so excited to finally be starting this. I've been talking about doing a podcast for absolutely ever, and I'm finally just doing it. And I am extremely excited to have my first guest co-host, uh, Crystal Patterson. We worked together at Facebook for many, many years. We many times said we should do a podcast together. We kind of joked as before we got onto this, we're doing this like Bill O'Reilly said, we're doing it live. Um, so you are getting <laughs> us doing this for the first time. But welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for being here with me. Hi, Katie. Thank you for having me. I am really excited about this podcast generally and super pumped um, to be here with you. I feel like we're starting to get the band back together in a great way. So super excited about this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, it might be a little dangerous to be getting the band back together on a podcast. (laughs) And letting the world into our brains in the conversations (laughs) we used to have in the company. Um, But we'll try it. We'll see what happens. I love this. I love this on uh, having the opportunity to talk about this stuff in a real way without a filter, too. Um, And I don't mean like we're going to say offensive things, but just oftentimes I think when we try to get into the nuance of this stuff, when we're part of a larger story that reporters are trying to tell, it's harder for them to include some of the nuance that we really toss around on some of these topics I think that you're thinking about. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, that's gonna be the great part about the format of a podcast is we we're, we're not, we don't have to be constrained by the sound bites and everything that that happens. And uh, to kick it off, you know, I'm going to be starting each episode with sort of a fun trade off um, for people, but that can be a feel impossible sometimes. And we're kicking off the podcast with the first trade off is would you order French fries or ice cream? Oof. I find this controversial. My mom is the ice cream obsessive. I have friends who are ice cream obsessives. I will choose the French fries every time. Um, I'm a much bigger kind of salt and savory person rather than a sweets person. Um, But, you know, the ultimate obviously is dipping your French fries into a Frosty from Wendy's where you get the best of both worlds. But if forced to choose, my trade-off is I take the the French fries over the ice cream every time. I love it. I'm also a French fries kind of gal. I've never really got into dipping it into into ice cream. I was more of a Dairy Queen girl growing up rather than a Wendy's frosty um but perhaps it's something that i definitely need to try yeah, next time yeah. that i'm yeah. out you could do it with a milkshake too there was something about the texture of the frosty and the flavor profile with the chocolate that really hit but it, it really the sweetness of the ice cream and the, the salty of the french fries is just undeniable it's such a good decadent treat it feels kind of um, subversive but hits a flavor profile that i think should be in every fine dining establishment really <laughs> a, a future career will be a, just a establishment that only serves French fries and ice cream. And you get to choose your <laughs> yes. flavor on both oh. and your toppings. And I think we might have a business idea here for, you know, I mean, should you know, our normal day jobs not work out? We're we're not even, you know, five minutes into this and you're already innovating. I love it. This podcast is already changing, <laughs> changing the world. I'm, I'm here for it. Changing lives. <laughs> uh, let's shift our focus to the tech issues we actually wanted to talk about. So first and foremost, last week, Senator Schumer had his big AI conflab with all of the various tech CEOs and other folks to kind of talk about the future of AI. Um, I'm curious, what were your takeaways from it and kind of your overall thoughts? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in wait 
wait and see mode. I think it's very encouraging that the major platforms had their leaders here. Uh, that's a sign of commitment and seriousness about what's in front of us with AI and both its, you know, strong possibilities and also the things that we need to be concerned about. Um, you know, having been inside the belly of the beast at one of these companies, you know, there's, there's so many issues to unpack and there's so much work that goes into figuring out the right answers for this stuff that, again, I think this is a really positive first step, but I don't think it's, I think it's too soon to really have judgment about where they're headed. Um, and again, this is all so new that I, I'm not even sure we're really aware of all the trade-offs yet. Like I, I and, and the conversation seems a little distorted at the moment for me. So I'm, I'm really happy they all showed up and are taking it seriously. And I also, just want to see where Congress goes next um, and where leaders in Washington go next. They often talk about this stuff, you know, to get attention. And then once we dig in, you know, they don't understand the issues well enough to really legislate it properly. So, you know, I want to see where they go with that. I mean, is this another classic of like, they, everyone agrees that they want some sort of regulation, but nobody can agree on the details of what that should actually be? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, the way this was set up where, you know, it wasn't public um, indicates that there is an acknowledgement that not everybody's on the same page yet about what this is. Um, I'm, I'm actually fine with them all hashing it out amongst themselves so they can get some answers instead of it being about performing. But yes, I, I think this is very much like so many tech issues we've seen before where we can see the problem or what we think the problems are and just cannot get to a consensus on what the answers are. And and to your point, you know, to the point of this podcast about impossible trade-offs, you know, these tech companies are in a really odd position because, you know, they have shareholders, you know, that they're accountable to, but there is a strong public interest in how these platforms, you know, influence public policy and public debate and, and figuring out how to balance those two things is challenging all the time. And AI takes it many, many levels up. Were there voices that weren't in the room that you think that Congress should be paying more attention to? That's a great question. I hadn't. Wow, that is a really good question. I hadn't really. Sorry, I should have. I should have prepped you for that one ahead of the time. But like, no, 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 one no, of the things okay. is like, I was talking with somebody. Um, a lot of people have been asking about this, right? And one of the <laughs> things that also occurred to me was like, there were just a lot of men in the room. There were women. There, there, there certainly were women at the table, but like, right. it was still predominantly male dominated. Because I was talking with somebody about just like the future of of women in the tech world and how you've seen a lot of women leave, like you know, like Cheryl and others and stuff like that. And so, you know, I was. Kind kind of wondering, like, there's a lot of different folks who have a lot of different viewpoints on this, right? And what that might look like. Um, and I, I would just hope that they continue to not just bring in the usual players who might be thinking about this and, and also thinking about who are those voices that don't normally get to be heard. I agree. I honestly have gotten so used to these convenings being the same, you know, sort of ratio of men to women um, and also just very top down. Um, and again, I think it's really great that these leaders are showing up and wanting to have these discussions and recognizing, you know, both the power and the, you know, the dangers of AI and wanting to talk about it. But, you know, having some people in the room who can talk about the impacts of what this tech can do or honestly, some, I, you know, I was doing some reading to prepare for our conversation and so many of the underlying issues remind me of you know, stuff we've been talking about for years in terms of, you know, how people consume information, what happens if, you know, misleading information becomes the norm and people act on it. Um, and, you know, to your point, a lot of the communities that are impacted by this stuff aren't, you know, rich white guys. It's 
you know, other communities. And it's also global. Um, I, I think it's great that the U.S. Congress is trying to take action on this stuff. But these issues transcend borders. And we can take some lessons from the, around the globe on, you know, what we need to be taking into consideration. And I, I'd like to see more, you know, representation there as well, because we have lessons to learn from other places. Do you think that any regulation will actually happen in this Congress on AI? No. Um, <laughs> I wish I had more optimism. Again, I think this convening is a very good, positive step. You know, they've had trouble really passing anything related to tech. And I think with the current political environment, it's much worse. I think Josh Hawley is behind at least one of the big pieces of legislation that they're considering. And just from a political standpoint, I'm not sure he's ideal as a champion for this type of thing. Um, And I'm not picking on him. I'm just looking at the landscape. And I I don't know that he was beloved before January 6th. um, But, you know, I don't I don't think his stature since then has really helped in terms of him being a leader on making sure people are getting accurate information and that, you know, we're looking out for the nation's best interests um, when, you know, we're looking at this legislation and and he may have great intentions. Again, I'm just talking about the politics of it. I also just think with the partisan divide we have in the country right now, they can't really get anything done. As we talk right now, they can't pass a budget. Um, And it's, so much deeper than it has been in the past on just our typical partisan lines that I think trying to pass something that's this complex and has so many implications is just going to be um, a, a several bridges too far for this particular Congress. But again, I'm, I'm encouraged that they're talking about it and that there is um, some fear and urgency to seeing that this technology is moving quickly and they do need to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, with I agree with you. I don't think anything will pass in Congress. But if the FEC does anything um, because they are currently accepting public comments around rulemaking on AI and political ads, we're starting to see some of the tech companies. Um, Google in particular has come out and said that they're going to require AI use in political ads to to be labeled. And so while we may not see anything on the legislative front, it's going to impact the election no matter what, which takes us into our sort of second news topic that I wanted to talk about. My favorite topic to cover all the time, which is tech and elections. I'm curious, um, what are you watching as we go into this fall and as we are preparing? Because primary season starts in January. Like, let's remember, folks, that like, it's not just election day in November, the voting starts in (laughs) January with the primaries that is right around the corner. Um, So yeah, I'm just kind of curious where your head is at right now and what you've been kind of watching. Yeah, I, I mean, for us, I think the campaign's been underway for a while. I mean, I have conversations with friends over text all the time about, you know, I don't think the average American is thinking about everybody is being on the trail. But you know, we're already in kind of the messaging zone. And I just think we're deep in it already. It's January is right around the corner. Um, I, I'm, I have two minds on, you know, campaigns and this technology. And I, I feel the same way about AI generally. I, you know, I, I, th- I understand and appreciate the sincere caution, serious caution people have about where this can go and how quickly the machines can learn. Um, but there's also a lot of positives to, having this technology available. Um, And I, you know, we started out doing campaigns when the internet, you know, was so nascent on campaigns. And, you know, we'd send an email every once in a while, and that felt like innovation. And, you know, it was so much work to create content, get it approved, get it out, get it posted. And now 
everything moves with the speed of light and it's become the norm. I think that's great, but I think this will introduce even more efficiencies to that process, which is great for campaigns. Again, they're trying to stretch budgets. So I think the less money and time they have to spend on certain things, the better. Um, that said, there's, you know, a ton of potholes and ways people can misuse it. You know, you've talked about how the platforms are starting to come up with some regulations themselves. I shouldn't say regulations, some rules for their platforms. I think that's a really good step. And I'm paying attention to how folks are thinking about this. When we were at Facebook, one of the most interesting things I learned was when we were talking about mis and disinformation on the platform, our teams got really good at looking at behavior rather than content to try to tell you know, which posts and which content was coming from fake accounts or fake actors or were part of orchestrated incidents. And from what I'm reading, that is also what we need to think about with this, you know, with AI generated content and, you know, making sure people aren't abusing it. So, I, you know, I think we all get freaked out by these deep fake videos or, you know, the ways people can kind of manipulate the content itself. But I'm encouraged that there's other signs we can use to tell when people are being manipulative. So I'm, I'm nervous because I don't think we've quite got our arms around how to regulate it, but I think there's a lot of potential to help campaigns do a better job of communicating with people. I will say, I keep thinking about the commercials I see, the very few commercials I see on TV. I, you know, I pay extra to not have ads on my like streaming TV service. And so when I do see an ad and it's not targeted to me or something I care about, I get very irritated quickly because I've normalized to you know, having Instagram ads or Twitter ads or whatever that are more relevant to what I care about. Um, and I think it's a good thing for campaigns to be able to tailor their content in that way. And, you know, AI can certainly help with that. It's, you know, it's kind of taking the micro-targeting that was so, you know, trendy for a while and taking it to the next level. So I think on that level, it's great. One of the things I think you kind of were going back and forth on that's kind of been on top of mind for me this week that by the time folks hear this on Thursday, we'll have already written about it, is about panicking responsibly. Because I worry that if we panic about every single thing that is happening, and there's going to be both pros and cons, but if we panic about every single thing, when something that really major happens and we panic, people might be a little numb to it. It's a bit like crying, the crying wolf fable, right? Around that. And so how do we make sure that we find that balance as we're trying to figure all of this out? And a lot of it kind of reminds me of where we were in late 2017, going into the midterms of 2018, which is the classic, we are building the plane while it's flying, right? And now we're changing it from a propeller plane to a jet engine plane with AI, and we can't stop the elections from coming. And so we have to get more used to like adapting on this stuff on the on the fly and trying to learn the lessons from before um, as we're as we're doing it. And it's just I I'm convinced there's going to be an AI tool that is going to be some campaign, whoever wins is going to be like, we won because of this tool that doesn't exist right now that we don't know about. <laughs> Oof. I mean, uh, that resonates for sure. Um, and I really appreciate the concept of panicking responsibly. I, I wish I saw more of that in some of the materials I'm reading about this, because, I, again, I think the default is to freak out totally without thinking about some of the positives that can come from <laughs> this technology. Um, but now I've got shivers up my spine thinking about, you know, what what lies ahead and also what it actually looks like. I, I do think... You know, we've we've been through this before, I think, where, you know, a campaign talks about how they've done something that's completely different than anything we've seen before when really it's just adapting or 
really using something that the rest of us kind of took for granted and they just do a victory lap on it. So (laughs) I'm also reserving judgment to see if that's, you know, what it ends up being instead. But yeah, I just think by the time we get into the deep part of the election, you're right. Like we're going to see some tools and approaches to this that aren't even on our radar right now. And that I don't envy the platforms having to figure it out in real time, as you say, trying to fly this, you know, figure this out as the plane is, you know, supersonic speed through the air does not sound fun at all. No, but it's also it's 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 a challenge that, you know, the legacy companies that have been through this before have to deal with but also a bunch of newer companies that are kind of handling this uh, for the first time. Um, before we leave, any tips um, or recommendations to folks who are who are following this of of things to, to keep in mind? Oof. Um, great question. Again, I'm trying to keep an open mind about this stuff. And I suggest everyone else do the same. And also, I'm doing two things. One, I'm trying to be very open as I read about stuff and also reading about it regularly. I think the Washington Post, they're having a new opinion column focused on AI. We'll have a newsletter. And I'm excited about that. I think having more resources towards, you know, researching this stuff and sharing it in the public, you know, in a non-academic way is really helpful. Um, And also just thinking about it in terms of all the other political forces we have right now. You know, we've had lack of trust in our institutions building for a long time. I think there's skepticism that's so deep in our politics right now. And I worry about the effect this will have in deepening all of that, which isn't good for anyone. So while I'm trying to keep my optimism, I'm also really sensitive to how the conversation around AI and what AI can do could really help or could really hurt in making those challenges even bigger than they already are. So not to end on like a bummer note, but (laughs) I don't want to get so caught up on the tech that we're missing it in the larger picture of you know, the political landscape. Yeah, I think that's that's really important to think about. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for being my first guest host. I am hoping to have you back as a regular now and then, but I really appreciate you kind of being my guinea pig on this one the first time. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you so much. My guest this week is Rebecca Thine. Rebecca worked at Twitter where she oversaw technical programs within the harmful and illegal content, which was an arm of the product and trust and safety pillar at Twitter. She focused a lot on elections. And so you're going to hear us talk a lot about the upcoming elections in 2024 and some of the ways that tech companies might be preparing around this and some of the trade-offs that they might face about that. Rebecca will share a little bit more about her background in the interview, but please enjoy. Rebecca, thank you so much for being my first guest on Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm excited to be here. And we get to talk about my favorite topic that I've only been talking about for the last five years, which is the huge number of elections happening in 2024 and how important that that year is. As somebody who's worked in this space quite a bit, I'm curious if you can kind of maybe set the stage for us a little bit about why next year is so unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. So over the next, I would say, I keep saying 18 months, but 18 months just keeps staying 18 months, even though we get closer to 2024 every day. Um, but we will have 60 elections across 54 countries over the next um, 18 months. Um, and of that, um, and it's, I try not to talk in like the internal 
like phrases and terms. However, what I would call like high risk or high importance or something that like people should be keeping their eyes on. There's a lot of elections going on simultaneously. And you know better than I do, Katie. However, this is the first time in like what history we've had so many like high risk, high impact elections occurring in the same year. So that's everything from like India, Indonesia, Ukraine, maybe Venezuela, Taiwan, Mexico, UK, the EU parliament, and on and on and on. Um, so in addition to those many elections occurring simultaneously, something that I like to talk about is also the fact that there's been big shifts in terms of social platforms where people, whether they like to admit it or not, maybe go there for news or to have political discussions. Um, and there's been a lot of shifts internally um, in social platforms. And there's been a lot of regulations coming down the pipelines. And then on top of all that, there's emerging technologies hitting our market, as well as new platforms where people are going to. Um, so it'll be an interesting year to see where political conversations take place and what happens. Yeah, absolutely. It is historical. It's never happened before that you have those countries you listed out all happening while we're also going through a presidential year, which is a big challenge for, like you said, tech companies from those that may have been dealing with this for many years to newer emerging ones that are trying to kind of deal with this, you know, for the first time. And let's dig into that a little bit more about where the current state of play is, because I wrote just recently in one of my newsletters that to me, it's kind of a kaleidoscope of positions that it's not really a spectrum because a lot of, there's a lot of stories about companies pulling away from this work, but there's also companies like Substack that are leaning really into the work. And so I'm curious, like, where are you sort of seeing the current state of play right now in terms of how tech is trying to approach these types of issues? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, a year ago almost, I predicted that we would see probably trust and safety roles move into different emerging tech or smaller platforms. And I think we're starting to see that right now a little bit more. There's more jobs hitting the market. However, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a huge shift. Um, I follow, I don't know if you have seen that dashboard that tracks like tech layoffs. It's layoffs.fyi. Yeah. 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 So, um, in 2023, there's been, 43% more layoffs than all of 2022. And we still have a quarter left um, in our industry. So it, it just speaks volumes. And I mean, we'll probably, you know, see it kind of over index the other way here, hopefully the latter part of the year, although nobody likes to hire when their budget is, you know, already set for the year. Um, we may see it uptick then come January. However, with all the elections, um, I've seen that more and more companies are starting to hire election teams. And that's good to see. However, there's still a lot of work to be done. And as you know, someone who's worked in this, if we were working on these elections, we would have started last year, uh, 18 months about out from an election is when we would probably start doing at least that initial discovery, if not more than 18 months. So um, I'm not saying they're not doing the right thing, but I'm just saying it, it feels weird because I feel like we're behind the ball and we've known this is coming. I know. I mean, I've been banging this drum since January 2020 when people were still like, we're dealing with the 2020 election. Why? They look like I had three heads coming out of me. But I was like, we've got to kind of think about this because to hire the people to the policies, everything. And then, like you said, like the technology's just changed so much, even in the last year of trying to predict where that is. And you're right that people are, companies are hiring folks, but it's still small numbers. Like it is not, I mean, as somebody who 
built all the election day reminders for two years all by herself. Like I do not wish that fate upon anybody of having to think about this stuff. And when you're, and even for those people where it's like half their job. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just like putting a candidate label on someone's profile, the amount of lift that goes into that is like amazing. So um, I think something else important to call out here, Katie is like, there's been a lot of shift in terms of like what policies exist in these companies, whether it be around ads or civic in general, civic meaning like political, let's say. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where the, I always think like where the accountability will fall, especially since like we're all on different platforms, cross platforms. The other day, my niece was watching a TikTok video of someone playing Twitch, like on Twitch. And I'm like, and, you know, the trust and safety professional in me was like, I wonder if something happened. Would that be TikTok's responsibility or Twitch's? Because it's like so weird to see how cross-pollinated all of this engagement is happening. And like not every company has the same policy and some don't have policies at all or trust and safety teams at all. So it'll be a really interesting year. Well, and we ran into that too, even because people would share YouTube videos on Facebook or Twitter, right? And those might... People might think that they violate or they we have different rules. And it's like, we just have the link. We can't make YouTube take action on that. Oh, oh absolutely. And then you like back then you could even edit the link, make it like a bitly link. And then you had no idea unless like someone reported it or you like, because you can't go through every single piece of content. It's impossible. Hence the name of the podcast, <laughs> Impossible Trade-Offs, so trying to provide more nuance to some of these challenges and stuff that folks face. Before we dig in a little bit more, let's um, give the listeners a little bit more of your background in terms of um, not only what you did at Twitter, what you're doing today, what you did before that. I find that at this moment in time, a lot of people, it's not like they went to school being like, I'm going to work on election integrity issues at an online tech platform. I mean, Facebook didn't exist when I graduated in 2003. And so tell us a bit more about your your origin story and sort of um, your background in this work. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely did not go to school for this. I went to school for geriatrics um, because being the analytical person I was, I was like, there will be a 100% job placement with baby boomers retiring. I will go be a nurse in geriatrics. Um, that did not work out. Uh, I was like, I can volunteer in this area. I just... I'm way too like system oriented and like analytical to be like, wait, why don't we do it this way? Um, so that being said, my career spans a variety of different industries, um, from healthcare to academia. And then obviously most recently within social media. Um, you know, my focus has been on like the sociological and technical impacts on democracy and more so the information ecosystem. Um, and that led me to a few different leadership, um, thought leadership roles now more specifically at Twitter in trust and safety. I am now doing a fellowship with the Integrity Institute. I'm in an advisory role with All Tech is Human. Um, and, you know, these opportunities has, have also allowed me to now participate in the Digital Sherlock's program through the Digital Forensics Research Lab at the Atlantic Council. Um, while I was at Twitter, I didn't just oversee elections. And that's a really weird expression because like, what does overseeing an election really mean? Um, my role was a senior technical program manager in civic integrity. I, my remit, I guess you could say, everything that I oversaw was in the harmful and illegal content space, um, which rolled up through product trust and safety. Um, and that that's spanned everything from, you know, CSAM, intellectual property, counterterrorism, weapons, violence, 
COVID misinformation and civic integrity, to name a few, you know, all the great things that are out on the internet. Um, what I would say is it's all the things that um, users care about, their trust of a platform, and a company should care about in terms of brand, reputation, and safety. Um, if you have no users on your platform, you have no platform. Um, so that was kind of what was in my remit. And um, during the duration of my my tenure at Twitter, um, I, I was brought on to globally scale election support. Um, after 2020, um, we saw what, you know, online <laughs> impacts can cause offline harms. And as a result, they were like, we are a global company and we need to support global elections. But how do we do that? How do we hire people and how do we decide which elections we support? We don't, we need someone to come and figure this out. So I was brought on um, to come in and figure out how we could globally scale and assess which elections we supported and what type of services we would provide. Um, I ran a threat emulation program where we would determine which, which threats we cared about um, and, you know, helped plan out how we could support elections simultaneously. And the idea being that in 2022, we knew that U.S. midterms would occur and that the Brazilian presidential election would occur. So how can we use this past year as a use case to prepare for 2024? So it's so funny that um, for those listening, you could probably assume what, what happened to my role um, working through the acquisition on this space. Um, I throughout this involuntary sabbatical, have had the privilege um, to continue this work, actually a little bit with Katie, um, working on the elections working group, creating the elections best practices guide through the Integrity Institute. Uh, second or second versions coming out soon everyone should check it out and then um, i've also been able to go and speak at many conferences and it's interesting because at first i was like who wants to hear from me i'm just somebody from minnesota i went to school for geriatrics i still don't even know how i got here um and it's amazing how many people in like civil society and ngos and different like companies wanted to hear from the people on the inside working on elections. Um, and so I've been able to go to RightsCon and DEFCON this year um, to talk about the importance of building competencies, collaboration, and obviously around election risks as we head into 2024. Um, and I Shout out to Hallie Stern and Sarah Amos for being my co-presenters throughout all these crazy conferences this summer. Um, and then I've even been able to provide some insights into the most recent version of the Responsible Tech Guide through All Tech is Human, which is supposed to drop today. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, everyone should go check out the most recent version of the Responsible Tech Guide. Yeah, we'll put all of, I'll put the links to all those, the Integrity Institute deck and the Responsible uh, Tech um, document. They've, there are, there are so many many fantastic resources for people, whether you are in a company or even if you're just somebody, if you're in civil society, if you're in media, if you're in academia, anybody who kind of cares or works around these issues, these resources are sort of meant to sort of help everyone and also help to like provide you a little insight in terms of what these types of things might look like. And I would say too, I just to mention the Integrity Institute deck, you know, one of the things I think we both found in, in putting that together was that 
we couldn't be very prescriptive because every platform's a little bit different. Every platform's different in the resources they have. They're different in how they might prioritize which threats they're able to, to work on. The threats that they face are going to be different in all of this. And so it's the, uh, and so it was important to provide frameworks. And it was also important that yes, we can have the conversation about how much resources leadership puts towards this work. Um, and that's an important conversation to have, but there's a reality of the situation that people like you, me, others were in where we had to deal with what we had. Um, and so we also want to be very practical for people of making sure that we don't just get into another conversation and be like, well, you should have more headcount. And you're like, yes, thank you. I would love to have more. That doesn't help me with my current situation <laughs> that I am facing and have to figure out if I use Google Translate to translate this post or not, right? Um, in terms of doing that. And so I encourage folks to, to check all that stuff out. So given that you've been talking to so many different types of organizations and people and other things like that, and as you mentioned, this landscape is just changing so rapidly, but what are some of the issues that you are, um, seeing around, you know, and how they might interact with elections and democracy? Cause elections are not just for us in a day. They're not just a week. They're not just a month. As you mentioned, we usually started work 18 months, two months, two year, 18 months to two years out um, of thinking about this. So what's a top of mind for you if like if you were still at a platform and you're advising them, what would you be watching out for? I have so many thoughts here, so I'll try to consolidate them. Um, first and foremost, I think you touch on something very key here in that it was always interesting to me that when we did support an election, the policy that we would um, implement around that, what we called electoral response period, which is a term I just made up. It was like some two hypothetical dates that happened before and after this where we can actually scale up, um, you know, detection and enforcement um, to put numbers towards like our resource asks. Right. Um there was no science behind it. It was just like someone needs to pick a number. Um, that being said, election or democratic activities always occur on platforms. It's not like, oh, because this election is in 18 months, now I'm talking about it. Sure, you may see increased engagement around political dialogue closer to an election. However, it's always there. Um, so there are there are a lot of things top of mind. One is around the policies that exist. I'm, you know, anxiously waiting to see what happens with ad policies, um, as well as if there will be any sort of like content moderation or like civic dis or misinformation policies that come out on the bigger platforms and what these new smaller platforms are going to do, especially those without trust and safety organizations. Um, one thing to call out that I think is important is in addition to, you know, the big tech companies doing layoffs, there's also been a huge amount of layoffs in that first line of defense content, commercial content moderation space. Um, and I mean, it makes sense in terms of like a business model that if the content moderation is not happening, why would we need people to perform this task? However, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens then as we get closer to these events. And I, as someone who has learned open source intelligence techniques this year, I'm curious what API restrictions are going to do in academia and research. And not only just like, I think so often we we either talk about the short term impacts of like this emerging technology being like generative AI, or it goes to the furthest extreme, like, you know, doomerism and like the world is going to end as we know it because of this technology. But what I'm, what's keeping me up at night is like, how will this write, rewrite history in 15 years? When people look back to this time and like, 
you know, are reading their history books, how will this show up like this, like next election cycle? Um, so that's something that I'm really curious about now that there will be limitations around like who can actually query data from these systems, from, you know, their APIs to be able to perform that analysis on what's happening. Um, I think a lot of times, and Katie, I'd be interested to hear what happened when you were at Meta or Facebook, um, in terms of like emerging narratives. I don't think people, you know, necessarily realized how much us as the people running the policies or the programs relied on our partners, um, external partners to give us that information. Um, and we leaned on them and they leaned on us. Like they had access to our APIs and they would be able to perform that analysis and be like, hey, this is an emerging threat you guys should be tracking. And like, I worry that that, that relationship is going to be gone. Well, especially since there's, you know, not just the factor on API, but the pure politics of it all happening right now in the questions around um, what is appropriate collaboration, because it was the same thing for us too. We partnered with all sorts of different organizations all around the world. And it wasn't because, you know, I think the cynics external would be like, oh, they just don't want to do the work themselves, et cetera, et cetera. You really needed to understand the cultural nuances of what was happening on the ground, not just the languages, because bad actors, right, will adopt emojis. A teddy bear emoji in one context is could be very different than a teddy bear emoji in another context. And technology and, you know, AI and those types of tools may not be able to pick up that nuance right away. Whereas if we had folks, you know, this is why we did a lot of work with Atlantic Council too, and the DFR lab does such great work in this of being some of the ones on the front line to be like, Hey, we're starting to see a lot of posts using a teddy bear vis-a-vis, I don't know, like the word Putin or something yeah. like that, right? Like this seems a little weird. Like you all might want to keep an eye out on this. And then, yeah, because they could also be seeing that on our platform and have that sort of human intelligence. It was really important to to have that. And I am, I'm very worried about that in the US, but I'm also very curious to see how that's going to play out in Europe with the DSA requiring some of this transparency. And there's more to just giving them the access to it, right? It's having the right UX and user interface to make it easy in which to access it. And that's what like the power of like CrowdTangle before, you know, in, in helping people to monitor that. There's other tools that that exist as well. Um, Junkopedia by the Algorithmic Transparency Institute. I'm on the board there at the National Conference of Citizenship that houses them. But there's many others that are trying to think through how, in, how to build some of these things. And I agree with you, like, it's really hard to remember that, like, we're very early in the history of all of this. And it's going to be really, we'll have to come back in 20 years and look back on like, how did this all kind of play out? Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right. Um, And something else that that's interesting here, um, somebody in my like friend circle the other week said something that kind of stuck with me. And it was like, the same people who don't want content moderation on platforms are the same people who are listening to the Billboard Top 100. And I was like, that's weird, but sure. Okay, like, I don't want you to curate what I see on my social media, but I do want to know what the top 40 is. And it's like, maybe that's not true, maybe it is. But it was just like an expression where I was like, I think there's a bad taste in people's mouths around content moderation. Um, And recently, I think it was just this week, Yoel Roth, 
came out with something um, about like the changing of like policies and content moderation and what that will look like. And just the idea of like making it more of a consumer feedback loop and how people wouldn't be so opposed to content moderation if they could actually see the impossible trade-offs that had to be made. Um, you know, he then goes on to mention about when um, Donald Trump had to be blocked from Twitter. Um, what went into that decision and how Jack actually at the time went out and put out a whole blog post of like every step that went into making that super hard decision. Why don't we do that more often? Why don't we, you know, not so much at the actor level, but like, why don't we actually go through and say like, when something does get escalated to this point, there are hard decisions. They're never made easily. They usually involve a large team that's thought out. And um, if people could see what went into those decisions, maybe they would like not have such a bad taste. Or maybe we just like recoin it and like make them involved in the feedback loop and it'll it'll get better because it could be like, you know, the escalation billboard top 100, whatever you want to call it. But like, it's not bad. Well, it's good. Why, this is why governments, I mean, the FEC right now, right, has uh, a period of time for public comments on its rulemaking around AI use in political ads. The, the Meta Oversight Board has a public comment period around these different things. And I agree with you. I think there definitely needs to be more transparency into the decision-making process. And in all honesty, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is like sometimes dig in future episodes, like dig into some of those very specific decisions and sort of set it up where I want like, I want the listener, you all the listeners to be like, oh, I know what I would do. Why does this seem so hard? And then we'd like to walk through it a bit more and then be like, oh, shoot, that's actually harder than I thought. And then you have the people that actually had to make the call with imperfect information in a chaotic environment, probably at midnight on a Friday night, at, sitting on an airport, a floor, because <laughs> they were traveling somewhere why they did that, right? Mm -hmm. Like Of why they made that call and like, would they do it differently in hindsight? All those different things is something that I agree, I think could potentially build a lot more trust with people, which kind of takes me to like the next thing I kind of want to talk about is like talking about prioritization. I think it can be easy for people to think that name the company has all the money and resources in the world. Um, and that's just not true. Whether no matter the size of the company, there's restraints of what, of what you can and cannot do. You can't do everything all at once. The stuff is not a flip of the, the flip of the switch. Um, and so I'm curious, like, how have you thought about in the past? What are the types of things you've needed to prioritize? And how have you tried to build frameworks to kind of think about what you are able to, you know, put resources to and what you can't? Yeah. So, I mean, I think throughout, throughout the years now, Katie, I think I've, I've looked to you and you've said it really well. Like you can't prioritize everything all at once. You, you're going to have to make decisions and in your decisions that you make, not everyone's always going to be happy. Um, it's those impossible trade-offs, right? So, um, first and foremost, I think if you have users, which I, I once, I don't even remember where it was from. Maybe you remember, but like, it's the only industry that calls their customers users besides drug dealers. It's like, if you're a user of this platform and you have a, like you live in a country that has an election, that platform, or I'm going to even go further to say search engine or AI tool or system should have an election program, should have a designated driver to, and I think you said it, like wake up in the morning and be thoughtful of what's happening. Um, be accountable, be the one who's like asking the questions of like, did you consider this? Um, and so when it comes down to like how you prioritize, I think it's really crucial 
for also people to remember that the platforms are still businesses and they are businesses to make money. They are not nonprofit organizations. And unfortunately, um, you know, there will be things that are monetizable. And so at the end of the day, when it comes down to prioritization, it doesn't just fall down to like, what keeps our users safe and trusting of the platform? Sure, there's brand reputation that is, you know, more and more becoming part of the conversation. However, I also feel that um, we need to consider like the company's top line objectives in terms of like what they're trying to do to grow and scale so that they can continue to be a platform that offers you the experiences you want. Um, so there is a a need for like a decision-making matrix. And I think the person who runs these programs or creates these policies need to work with leadership to define like, here are the risks that we have like collectively categorized into buckets. Which ones do we care about? What's the weight of them? So that at the end of the day, we can make decisions quickly based on like the weight of what is happening in, in society, right? And it, you can't plan it out to a perfect T. So what I always say is like, you needed to plan enough for the highest level risks by, you know, whatever country is most important to you. Maybe it's based on like how many daily active users. Um, maybe it's based on like the political landscape in that given country or location. Um, and then you need to be able to, you know, say here are the threats that we care most about. Here are the drivers of those threats. So in the event something happens in this space, that's the person who gets to make the final determination on some hard decisions. And then here's the space we have available for those other threats or things we can't predict. Um, and I think that's very crucial to have someone who can stay accountable to tracking all of that activity because it can change in a minute. I mean, I always use the old Donald Rumsfeld phrases, which was like, you have your known knowns, your known unknowns, but then there's the unknown unknowns and you can't prepare. We could not imagine, you know, the exact scenario of how this stuff is going to play out. And so you got to have a process for figuring out when those unknown unknowns happen, you at least have a process in, like you said, framework and other things to try to think through, okay, where does this slot in as we're thinking about this and who are the people that need to be in the room? So you're not, you're not doing all that when the thing is actually happening. Absolutely. And I think over the years, now that we know more than we did probably back when you first started at Meta, what was that in 2011? 2011. Yeah. Yeah. So like we know more today than we did then in terms of like some, you know, small interventions that platforms can take. And I think that we lay those out pretty nicely. Um, another plug for the Integrity Institute Best Practices Guide coming soon. Um, but in essence, like there are small interventions you can do up front to try to uh, not even make risk a thing in certain areas that it's like there's a lot of times it's like similar risks that are reoccurring throughout elections. So it's like, well, now that we know that this works, why don't we just do it up front to prevent it from even happening? And I think it's important to call out like it doesn't always have to be reactionary. There are things that can be done um, on the forefront to allow you that extra space because, yeah, you can't plan for yeah, the unknown yeah. unknowns. In 2019, WhatsApp reduced the number of forwards that you could do from like, I can't remember, it was like 20 something to like five. Yep. Yep. And it was amazing how much that did 
just to reduce misinfo overall, not just elections misinfo, but like, and that's a platform where you can't do very much on the content side because it's all encrypted. Yeah. So you really have some choices on the design side of what you can do to try to, to try to do that. And so like, so there's prioritization in terms of countries. And you mentioned there's different ways that people might think about prioritizing that. There's also prioritization in terms of the surface areas that a platform might have and, and, and what you might do, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that also can be like considered in unison with like the policies that exist, right? Because, and you don't just create a policy to try like a product to fix a problem, right? You need to focus on the problem itself, right? So like when you're creating your policies, your products or your features or what you're actually offering in terms of like civic services, you can say, needs to align with that. And it, you know, ladders up to those risks that you want to make sure that you are preventing. Um, that being said, while at Twitter, the it was interesting because I'm like, I did not know how complicated it would be for video and audio and, um, you know, text-based detection and enforcement, quite easy in terms of like what you can automate using like machine learning algorithms. You then add in the extra level of like, oh, let's launch this cool new thing, Spaces. And it's like, whoa, how are we going to in real time monitor this to be able to detect and enforce? You can. It was impossible at the time. So then you have new platforms coming on the market like TikTok, who just passed 1 billion users. And it's like, wow, it's so complicated. So it does depend on the platform. You know, some platforms, too, are coming up with new and creative ways to do moderation. They're leaving it up to, you know, community moderators in their space. And I think it's important to call out that or bring it back to a point you made earlier of like, it's not an all size like fits one, like it's going to ebb and flow. And then you sprinkle on the fact like people are cross platform sharing stuff and like the complexities that's going to come with enforcing stuff there. I think we're going to see more and more collaborative working groups across platforms, across organizations. Um, and maybe not at first, but I think we're going to be forced into it because we're going to have to be. You know, that information sharing, that funneling of information between platforms is going to become crucial, um, especially ahead of 2024. Let's shift really quick um, because there's not just harms that these teams are trying to mitigate. There's ways that they can actually do things that actually help the democratic process. I think people sometimes forget that prior to 2016, these platforms were seen as potentially a great democratizer. Um, and those positive use cases did not go away with everything that happened in 2016. We still have a lot more we have to do in terms of mitigating the harms. But there's still a lot of good that can be amplified as well. Um, can you kind of dig into some of the ways that like you've done that and what you've seen on different platforms? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a really important call out um, because it's funny because that last past year with Twitter, everyone's complaining about it and like people are still using it because it still is great, right? Like it still has its purposes for people. And it's like people who are on these platforms, um, you know, it could be the way that they get their information or their news. Um, one thing that I was always like particularly proud of while I was at Twitter was, you know, creating different like what people could imagine as like public service announcements or like and what we called them internally would be like we are trying to have like a civic literacy campaign, right? Like, here's how you can participate, encouraging people participate and by educating them on ways to do so um, was something that I think that platforms continue to do. Um, and it doesn't even have to be about information. In fact, I often feel 
that the information ecosystem, you know, the social platform is just a tool. The information ecosystem is underneath that. If we want to fix the information ecosystem, we need to go a layer deeper and we need to stop putting blame just on the platforms because the platform is a company. They're trying to make money. That being said, they also are trying to create a space for people to come and have conversations. Um, and that dialogue is still happening on platform. Um, I feel like, and we may get into it more later, but the idea of artificial intelligence, it's not all bad. You have people who maybe couldn't participate in campaigns in the past because they didn't have the resourcing or tooling available that now have access to things to help them run for office. There are so many opportunities ahead of 2024 um, that now I've stopped saying civic literacy campaign. And now I'm saying like, it's a digital literacy campaign. It's not just about the platform. It's not just about, you know, the tweet or the post or whatever you want to call it. It's about that information ecosystem and how, um, I think what by 2030, they are, you know, hoping that there's internet across all of the United States for people. That accessibility is becoming, at least in the United States, um, hopefully globally someday, people are more likely to participate and engage in these conversations and have access to information they didn't have. And I know you're from the Midwest like I am. And so it was funny. I was back home a few weeks ago and they were talking about how fast their internet was. And I'm like, what, what are these numbers you're talking about? Because someone who lives in Seattle, I'm like, I've never had to wonder about like how fast my broadband is or like, and it's just, my parents just, my parents just got wired yes. internet this year. See? And it's like, and we they forget only live those 20 things. minutes outside of Green Bay. Like exactly. <laughs> we forget these things. And it's like the fact that more and more accessibility is like hopefully on our horizon, hopefully means more and more people will be able to participate, which in turn hopefully means less and less bias into stuff because more and more people are participating. Like there's a lot of opportunity that I can see coming down the pipeline, um, especially if done right. And I think there's a lot of opportunity too for people to start, um, you know, uh, informing and educating and putting pressure on regulatory bodies. Um, a lot of people are fun employed this year who I used to work with at different companies who now are out and communicating with people and trying to, um, you know, use their knowledge to help, you know, revise different policies, whether it be like, uh, GDPR revisions and like just trying to educate people on like how things are built or even just society and like how these hard decisions are made. I think it's just so wonderful that, um, you know, there's going to be more opportunities for people to like gain that education. Yeah. I hate to say if there's a silver lining to the layoffs, but if there's a silver lining to them, I mean, it's, it's horrible, but to see the number, you know, when I left Facebook in March in 21, there weren't that many people that were talking out and especially none that not that many that had actually been inside the companies. There were some, but you know, now you have this wide, this large number of folks who have varied and diverse knowledge. And it's not like they're, they're not violating their NDAs. They're not, it's not like they're gossiping about what happened here or happened here. It's like, no, these are like, when we sit down, UL has been doing this a lot too, is like, listen, let me just walk you through, like, what would you do if you were in my shoes? These are the things we're trying to deal with, right? Like you have a government somewhere pressuring you to take down content and you have employees in that country. And it's a country that has no hesitation to harass and intimidate in a physical way people. And you have to weigh that. 
you you don't have the luxury of of sort of like being removed from that and and you're like i my ideal would be to push back but if i push back how do i help make sure that my employees stay safe exactly and i think it goes even beyond employees i think it's an important call out too just to understand like as we talk about these platforms and like who is on them in the united states we don't really have like internet blackouts or apps being turned off from an app store because they violate, um, you know, some sort of regulatory requirement. That is the case in other countries. And if that's something that is like, you know, hung over someone's head, like the weekend ahead of an election, and you're like, we don't want people not to be able to see these literacy campaigns we've come out with or like ways that they can go to register to vote, then it becomes a different story of like why maybe you did make that decision because you didn't want your app to be blacked out. Like there's so many other things that go into it um, to make sure that people can continue to use these services and tools, right? Absolutely. Well, to wrap up, because we just have a few more minutes, um, I, it's, it's, it's near impossible to predict what will come tomorrow, let alone where we will be come 2025. Other than that, I tell everyone, it's just the world's going to look so different in 2025. <laughs> um, and there's so many different aspects that are going to be playing off of one another over the next, like you said, it's not 18 months anymore. I have to, I've had to adjust it to 16. Okay. Which I'm not even sure if that's entirely right. Like I think I need to do the math um, on that, but what are you watching? What are the types of things that you're kind of keeping an eye on of how they unfold? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of really fun things going on right now that keep me up at night that I'm all into though. Like, um, I know earlier this week I sent you a podcast. I think it was on Arbiters of Truth, right? Um, Josh Tucker of NYU came out with his like 2020, how did Facebook and Instagram impact elections? And it's really interesting to listen to um, and learn about that study because even from 2020, how much has changed um, is you know, great. Like, it's just so like interesting to see AI was not a conversation. Deep fakes were not a conversation. Like there's so many things that now are going to be harder to detect um, in terms of like generative AI, but then also just like, it'll be interesting to hear about AI literacy and what happens there. Um, a, like a month ago, I went on and asked, uh, a chat bot who won the 2022 election in Brazil and their data went through May of September or May of 2021. And it's like, we cannot answer that. So I think it's important just to see like what literacy campaigns are going to be out there and not just about like, hey, here's what platforms can do, but just like, hey, society, as you gain access to these tools, here's how you better understand the terms of service and what you're actually giving your data out to. Um, you know, so often we don't talk about the how what you see on the internet is based on what you do on the internet conversation, but it is, it's really that, that digital ecosystem that is like, you know, trying to feed us our preferences, but also trying to sell us stuff as well. And I think it's an important thing that throughout these election cycles, we'll be able to see more and more of, um, I don't know if you know the expression back in the day, it was like, as Ohio goes, the nation goes when we talked about like us oh, yeah. politics, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm feeling about like the EU right now. Like as the EU goes with regulatory stuff, we're going to have to follow because a lot of the companies that these like VLOPs, very large online platforms or um, very large online search engines and maybe pretty soon very large online 
AI chatbots, I don't know what you would call it, they're going to have to adhere to. So then in essence, they're not just going to build off a one-off for that country. That's just going to become standard. So I think we're going to see a lot of regulations. I think we're going to see a lot more political involvement in a technical space, which is pretty cool because um, I would say that, you know, given the average age of our elected officials, it's been kind of fun to watch them try to learn about like artificial intelligence and how, how that works. Um, and then something else, Katie, that I feel like we don't really talk about that I'm really interested in is the sustainability piece. Um, you know, there's a lot of big companies who are investing in these emerging technologies that um, have signed climate pledges. However, if you look at what it takes to build a large language model and how many like, you know, how much it takes for like compute power to like support this infrastructure that we are feeding so much data into. I'm like, where does the accountability fall for sustainability metrics in terms of climate? So I think they're going to be something there that we see coming down the pipeline, especially through that election cycle in terms of like climate, at least I hope because that's an important discussion. <laughs> yeah. And I think it'll be really interesting to see too, to your point about Europe, you know, threads chose not to launch in Europe right away because of the rules. And so, and in the UK, some platforms are threatening to pull out because of the online safety bill. Oh, totally. And and so did you recently see that CNN pulled their uh, Facebook page because of the new requirements in Australia about comments and liability? Yes. I, yeah, I get it. Like that would be an impossible thing for them to moderate what other people are commenting on their page. So I feel like we're going to see a lot of these weird shifts and, um, It'll be interesting. And you have on top of that, yeah, you've got these Supreme Court cases that they're going to be deciding. There's so many there, you know, whether or not they take up Texas and Florida around content moderation, but also there's one around whether or not government officials can block or ban people from their social media accounts. And this is one where like, I'm going to do a future episode and kind of talking about this, but like, yes, you want to have people be able to have access to their elected officials, but you talk to any politician, but particularly a female politician, a person of color, a, you know, um, LGBTQ plus, whatever that might be, they face an unprecedented amount of harassment online. And if you're taking those tools away from them, you're going to have less of them are going to want to run because they're not going to want to have to face that. And so we really need to think about some of these unintended consequences of what we're thinking about when it comes to this stuff. Oh, absolutely. And I was, and when I was just at DEF CON, there were, what did they say? There were 2,000 people who participated in the AI hackathon. I was one of them. Um, and they tested, they allowed us to test like eight large language models. Um, and it's interesting because it's like, I'm looking around the room. And for those who don't know, DEF CON is um, more of like a cybersecurity um, conference. So I'm looking around the room and I'm one of three women in the room. And I'm like, it's ironic oh, wow. to see at that moment, they had different like slots, right? So in that moment, let's say out of 50 people, there were three women. And I'm like, it's interesting because we hear this conversations about bias and algorithms, right? And these large language models. But then here we are at a conference where they actually give us access to test the products. And it's like, there's not enough women in the room. There's not enough. The people who are here got like, could afford to be here or were invited here. And it's like, I, I hope that as, you know, going back to the earlier comment of as more and more people who are unemployed and like putting pressure and sticking themselves into stuff, I hope people are continually putting themselves in the conversation of like, there's bias that is built into technology. And like, in order for it to be accessible to everyone, it needs to be built for everyone. And I think hopefully we will see more of that in the next, you know, 
16 months. Well, Becca, thank you so much for joining me on the first episode. We could talk about this topic for hours. I will probably have you back to keep talking about these topics for hours. Um, but thank you so much for uh, joining us. And I will put links to a bunch of the stuff that you mentioned and some of the stuff that you're working on in all of the show notes. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. This episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you.